Thank you, band, and morning, everybody. It's good to have the opportunity to share with you again today. I want to start by reading from Scripture, and my reading today is taken from Psalm 51. For those of you that know the Psalms and Scriptures, you will know that this Psalm was written by David after the time when he'd fallen away from God and had sinned with Bathsheba and with the murder of her husband. And the first verses are David coming back to God and asking for God's forgiveness. I want to pick the reading up in verse 7, where David starts to ask God to do very specific things in his life. So I'm reading from Psalm 51, from verse 7 through to 17. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. Create in me a pure, some versions say clean, heart, O God, and renew a right or a steadfast spirit within me. And if you want a text for today, it would be that one. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then will I teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Let's pray for a moment. Father God, we thank you that we can come to you today to worship you. You're a holy God and you're worthy of our praise. And Father, we bring our praise willingly to you. But one day, Lord, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you are Lord to the glory of God the Father. Thank you that your word is an open book for us. Thank you for the places up and down this land and across the world where your word will go forth today. Help it to be light in darkness. Holy Spirit, we welcome you into our midst this morning, praying that you will open our eyes, that you will soften our hearts to hear wonderful things from your word. Amen. From time to time in our house, a recurrent question pops up. Sometimes it leads to Paul and I talking about it. Other times it will just be me asking the question. This question never gets an answer because in some ways it's a rhetorical question because we can't answer it. For Paul and myself, there's no answer to this question. This question will invariably crop up after there's been something on the news or I've read something in the paper or we've watched a particular television programme that's based in fact. And 
the question is invariably linked to some scientific research or some development in medical science that's taken place. So now you're probably thinking, well, what could this question be? Well, it's very simple. The question is, what must it feel like to be a person who has discovered something or has invented something which changes people's lives, either by extending their life, making their life better, or even saving their life? Now, I'm not talking about inventions like you get on Dragon's Den, when these people come in and they try to convince the dragons that they have got something that everybody needs in their life because it's going to change their life. No, it's nothing like that. Let's put it another way. How does a person feel to know that they have saved lives? And I'm not talking about just in normal day-to-day -day medicine, but lives of dozens of people or even hundreds of people because they have discovered something. Names will often go down in history because we remember them for what they've invented. If you say the name Marie Curie, working in the late 1800s, early 1900s, her discovery of polonium and radium fundamentally changed our understanding of the use of X-rays and radioactivity. And her findings contributed to the treatments of cancer. The name Christian Barnard will always be synonymous with the first human-to-human -human heart transplant that took place in South Africa in 1967. Now, just before Christmas, I was reading something about heart transplants in young children. What I found out was that young children, if they need a heart transplant, they don't have to be of the same blood group as the donor, unlike in adults. But they have to be, have to have certain antibodies flushed out through their bodies. And by continually flushing out antibodies from the young children, they are able to receive donor hearts that aren't an actual match. And there was one doctor he was a paediatric cardiologist working at Great Ormond Street Hospital. And his, his name was Dr. Richard Isit. And he and a couple of his colleagues worked out how they could target a specific antibody in the child to stop it sticking to the donated heart and prevent it from being rejected. And do you know, I found out that this was done back in 2014, but it hadn't been widely known. And it turned out that Richard Isit and his two colleagues, one night in a pub on the back of a beer mat, sketched out how they could target these specific antibodies. And it came to light that... The article I read said that this procedure has been successfully carried out, increasing the opportunities for young children to have heart transplants. For years now, up and down the country, in lots of different hospitals, and across the world, and it only came to light recently because a father had spoken to the news. A six-year-old lad had had a heart transplant using this method, 
And the father said that the son had been given back to them because the son's life had been saved. I wonder how Dr. Richard Isaac must feel knowing that he and his team are responsible for doing amazing things like this and for giving children their life back and giving them back to their parents. Now, I know that I'm never going to be in a situation like that. I'm never going to come up with anything that's going to change people's lives. So I can never answer that question. And to be honest, I would imagine that most people sitting here today are in the same situation, standing in the same shoes as me, not the same shoes as Dr. Richard Isit. And I've thought about this question so much over many years. And whenever I hear of new developments in medical research, I keep coming back to that question. And I keep verbalising that question. And I'll say to Paul, I wonder what it must feel like to be that person, knowing you're responsible for doing that. And I was thinking about it recently, when a very, very clear thought came into my mind. Because it was just like a voice speaking to me, and it said, that's not what's important. You don't need to think of yourself as being needed to do something like that. How much more important is it to be and to be known and to be remembered as a man or a woman who is after God's own heart? And we use the term man to mean the whole of mankind, man, woman, young person, whatever. And so the title for my thoughts today for you is A Man After God's Own Heart. You know, as Christians, we know that it's eternal life that matters rather than life here on this earth. And although we may never play a part in saving a human life, we can play a part in helping people to find eternal life. And how do we do it? Well, I want to explore this thought today through the life of the Old Testament character, David, the shepherd boy who became king. What could be better than being known as somebody who is after the heart of our Creator God? This description, a man after God's own heart, was first used by the prophet Samuel when he was rebuking Saul, the first king of Israel. So in 1 Samuel 13 verse 14 we read, The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be a commander over his people. That phrase is repeated again in Acts chapter 13, verse 22, when Paul was recounting the history of Israel. He said, He raised up for them David as king, to whom he also gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. So let's think for a moment about the circumstances that surrounded and that preceded this declaration from the Lord. And in order to do this, we need to compare and contrast David and his predecessor Saul. Now Saul was the first king of Israel. 
He came after the period of the judges because Israel wanted a king. They saw what the other nations around them had got. They got kings. And Israel demanded to have a king. And so Saul was chosen as the first king of Israel. He looked the part. He acted the part. We read that he was tall. He was striking in appearance. And at first, he did really well in his role. But soon, his pride grew and his reliance on God faded. And one example we find of this is in 1 Samuel chapter 13. Saul and the army were fighting the Philistines at Gilgal. And they were under attack and they were being driven back into the hills. And they had been commanded quite clearly by the prophet Samuel to wait. And he was to come and he was to offer a sacrifice to God. But when they were under attack, instead of waiting for Samuel to arrive, Saul took matters into his own hands and he made the burnt offering himself. Now, the problem with this was he'd been told quite clearly to wait seven days and he knew the state of his kingdom depended upon his waiting. But no, Saul became impatient. Saul didn't trust God and under pressure he went against God's command. The continuous waiting for him was tedious and uncertain. At any moment, the retreat to the mountains could be cut off. And so he chose to do what he thought was best, to take matters into his own hands and to make the burnt offering himself. And then when it was called out, this disobedience, when it was challenged, he made excuses for what he'd done. Rather than take responsibility for his actions, he started to make excuses. And this disobedience was the beginning of Saul's downfall. Because his pride, his arrogance, his disobedience grew. And Saul tried to make up for his lack of confidence and lack of obedience in God by making that burnt offering. But God knew Saul's heart. In 1 Samuel 15:22, we read, But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than to sacrifice. And because of his disobedience, his arrogance, his lack of faith, his refusal to trust in the Lord, Saul was then rejected by God as king. We read that in 1 Samuel 15. And David was chosen. But what made David different to Saul? Well, David was the son of Jesse. He was, in fact, the eighth son of Jesse. Now, Jesse had already got his first seven sons, almost his completed family, because seven is believed to be the number of perfection and completeness. So seven sons would have completed the family. But then along came David. And David, at this point, was very insignificant. He'd been sent off into the fields to mind the sheep, while the other seven sons were men of war. He hadn't accomplished anything at all by this point. But Samuel prophesied that there would be a man after God's own heart becoming king. And we know that God knew David's heart God knew what David would do long before David had got any idea 
what his future held. We're told in 1 Samuel 16 verse 7, the Lord doesn't look at things that man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And God knew David's heart, even as a shepherd boy. He was a musician, a writer of the Psalms. But it's if we look at the way in which David lived, we'll see how his life spanned out. And we'll see what his heart was like by looking at his life. Because actions speak louder than words, don't they? In 1 John 3 verse 18, we read, Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. So what I want to do today is I want to look at some examples from the life of David to see why he was called a man after God's own heart. Now, if you read different commentaries, you about if you look up a man after God's own heart and read different writers, you will find that lots give different numbers of reasons how you can be a man or a woman after God's own heart. Some give three. If you only want three, go back a couple of weeks to what Laura spoke about and what's appeared on the board. To do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. From Micah. Others will give you five, others will give you ten. But I want to give you seven this morning. The number of affection. I want to give you seven. Now don't worry, it's not a seven point message. They'll be very brief and I'll just take one example from um, David's life for each of these. But first of all, David seeks forgiveness for his sin. David wrote many psalms and lots of the psalms ask for forgiveness. Psalm 25 verse 11, for the sake of your name, O Lord, forgive my iniquity for it's great. Because, you know, everything in our life has to start with this, with seeking forgiveness for sin. Now, we know that David didn't live a perfect life, but he acknowledged his sin and he repented of it and he sought God's forgiveness. In his life, he broke the Ten Commandments, or some of them at least, his adultery with Bathsheba, the murder of Bathsheba's husband, and it was a drastic downfall for him. But when the prophet Nathan told him about the terrible things that he'd done, David was so distressed about it. But unlike Saul, he didn't make excuses for his behaviour. He said in 2 Samuel 12, 13, I have sinned against the Lord. Although he'd made a horrible decision in what he'd done previously, he had remorse and sorrow for his actions and he sought God's forgiveness. He brokenheartedly confessed his sin and he asked God for forgiveness and for restoration. And so that verse that I read this morning, creating me a clean heart, O oh my God, and renew a right spirit within me, was David's prayer for forgiveness. Secondly, David had faith in God. I'm sure you all know the story of his battle with Goliath. When he fought Goliath, he took no credit himself. He gave God all the credit for Goliath's defeat. When he addressed Goliath before the fight, he said in 1 Samuel 17 verse 47, all those gathered here will know 
that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. That was David's unerring faith in God. And so throughout his whole life, through faith, not reliance on his own skill or his own action, God empowered David to be victorious. Giant killing faith remained with David throughout the whole of his life. Thirdly, David trusted in God. Psalm 4 verse 8 says, I will lie down and sleep in peace. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. You see, Saul was a constant threat to David's life. But David respected him as the king, and on more than one occasion he spared his life. If you read in 1 Samuel 24, we see one particular time when David chose to spare Saul's life because he got faith and trust in God. In the cave where Saul was sleeping, David could quite easily have taken his life. But he didn't harm Saul. He put in God, his trust in God to right any wrong that had been done. He said, may the Lord judge between you and me and may the Lord avenge the wrongs that you have done to me. But my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evil doers came evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. David had complete and utter trust in God. It wasn't his option to strike down the king that God had put in command. And trusting God was the root of his obedience in dealing with Saul. David knew God had said that he would be the next king, but he would have to wait until Saul had been removed not like Saul, who'd taken matters into his own hands. David relied on God to save him from the wickedness of Saul, who wanted to destroy him. Fourthly, let's look at David's love. First and foremost, David loved God. Psalm 18, verse 1, I love you, O Lord, my strength. And because David loved God, this led him to show love to others, in how he dealt with them, both enemies and friends. In all of his dealings with Saul, who realistically was an enemy, he showed sacrificial love that persists regardless of the circumstances. That's known as an agape type of love. Love towards a man who was determined to be his enemy. And David was doing this centuries before Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Love your enemies. And then David loved Saul's son, Jonathan. They had a brotherly love, filial love. You can read about that in 1 Samuel 20, how Jonathan loved David. And then when Jonathan died, David said, I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful. David showed love and mercy to the crippled son of Jonathan, Mehiphabesh. Is there no one still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Was what David asked. 
And kindness here is the covenant love of God and mercy. So David showed love. David showed humility, the fifth point. Psalm 62, verse 9. Low-born men are but a breath. The high-born are but a lie. If weighed in the balances, they are nothing. David remained humble even after his successes in battle. He was humble towards man. When Saul offered David his daughter Michael as a wife, he replied, Do you think it's a small matter to become the king's son-in-law? I'm only a poor man and I'm little known. He was humble towards God. Later in life, after being crowned and conquering the enemies, Nathan told David of God's promise to extend his dynasty over David. And he prayed, Who am I, O sovereign Lord? And what is my family that you have brought me this far? And as if, as if it were not enough in your sight, O sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant. At this point, David had known immense success at everything that he put his hand to, but he never took credit for it. He never considered himself worthy of greatness. He gave all the glory to God. He was humble. Sixthly, David had integrity. Now, we've said that David didn't live a perfect life, but he admitted when he was wrong and he took responsibility for his mistakes, a great sign of integrity. An example of this was when David um, was being pursued by Saul and David lied to the high priest Elimelech in order to get food for his men and to get the sword of Goliath. And David's lie directly led to the death of 85 priests and the enti entire town of Nob was wiped out by Saul's command. We read this in 1 Samuel 22. But when David learned of this, he admitted his fault and he took into his company the sole survivor of that priesthood settlement. He said, I am responsible for the death of your father's whole family. Stay with me. Don't be afraid. The man who is seeking your life is seeking mine also. You'll be safe with me. That's just one example from many of the times he took responsibility for the mistakes that he'd made and turned it round and did something that was right. And then lastly, David worships God. Psalm 18 verse 3. I will call to the Lord who is worthy of praise. Even though David made a poor choice with Bathsheba and it led to heartache for many years to come, David never stopped worshipping God. Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 were written much around the same time and David realised that righteousness didn't come from his actions but from loving and submitting himself to God. At a time when many might have run away and hidden from God, David chose to praise the Lord instead. Many of David's psalms were full of heartache and they even questioned God, but he never stopped praising and worshipping him. Psalm 9 verse 1, I will praise you, O Lord, with all of my heart. If you go through the psalms, you'll see so many of them start with David praising God. And so, David's life shows us why he was called a man after God's own heart. 
because it showed his actions. But it also shows us the character that we should look for in ourselves as followers of Christ, who are called to be men, women, after God's own heart. First and foremost, we have to seek forgiveness for our sin. Now, we live under a new covenant that's been accomplished by Jesus' death. We don't live under the law, but we live under grace. And the only way is to come to the Lord, to God, through the Lord Jesus Christ. Because in John 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So first and foremost, we must believe in the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Ephesians 2, it's by grace that you've been saved, not from yourself, it's the gift of God. So first and foremost, we have to have forgiveness. Then we have to have faith. We have to trust in all circumstances and we have to obey. What does the old hymn say? Trust and obey. We have to show sacrificial love. Love for others, even for our enemies. We've been given a new heart that feels love and compassion and the love for God leads us to live for others. We should be humble not consider ourselves better than others. We should have integrity. We should operate with integrity and openly admit mistakes and ask for forgiveness when we've done something wrong. And we should worship. We should worship the Lord no matter what our circumstances are. We may not be called to face the same types of giants as David was called to. We may not be called by God to rule a nation. We may not be called by God to do amazing scientific discoveries, but we can choose each day to live and to seek God's heart. There was a man by the name of Nelson Bell. In 1916, he graduated from medical school. And later that year, he went to China with his bride of six months as a medical missionary. At the age of 22, he became a surgeon at the Love and Mercy Hospital. It was the only hospital in an area of at least two million Chinese residents. And Nelson, along with his family, lived in that area for another 24 years, running the hospital, performing surgery, and sharing the gospel with thousands of people. When Nelson first arrived, he was called a foreign devil. But by the end of his time there, he became known as the Bell, who is the lover of Chinese people. Nelson Bell's daughter Ruth was later to marry the evangelist Billy Graham. Now, although Nelson was a brilliant surgeon and a wonderful Bible teacher, it wasn't his skills that drew many to Jesus. It was his life. It was his character. And it was the way he lived out the gospel. Titus 2 tells us that living like Christ is crucial because it can make the gospel attractive. 
God's grace helps us to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives that reflect his truth. You know, there's many people around us today, they don't know the good news of Jesus, but they do know us. May he help each one of us to be a man after his own heart so that we can reflect and reveal his message in attractive ways. There's a lovely song that I don't believe you know or aren't particularly familiar with here at Bethel, but the second verse goes like this. Teach us, Lord, full obedience, holy reverence, true humility. Test our thoughts and our attitudes in the radiance of your purity. Cause our faith to rise, cause our eyes to see your majestic love and authority. Words of power that can never fail, let their truth prevail over unbelief. Thank you for listening and may God bless you this week as I trust you try to live for the Lord as a man after God's own heart. Amen.